I want to know, since you're ahead of your time, um, how to live forever. The longevity paradox is another one of your books. What are, what's the premise there? What do we need to do to live long, healthy lives? So, and I think we're finding more and more and more about this every year is that the, the health of your gut microbiome, the diversity of species in your gut microbiome, and the integrity of the wall of your gut is the, are the best two predictors of health span that we can come up with. Now, in the energy paradox, I go on to show that uh, really elegant work by uh, Dr. Raphael DeCabo from the NIH has shown, certainly to my satisfaction, that the shorter we make an eating window, the longer we're going to live and live well. And the good news about that is, at least in his research, it really doesn't matter the types of foods we eat, whether it's a high sugar diet, whether it's a high protein diet, whether it's a high fat diet, it's actually the compression of the eating window that makes the difference. And I go into this a lot in The Energy Paradox, and my current editor, Julie Will, fought me on this because it's really nerdy. But the really cool thing is probably calorie restriction, which is still the number one way to extend lifespan works not by restricting calories, but works because calorie restricted animals, because they don't get much to eat, eat their calories rapidly. And it's the time they're not eating that actually made the difference. And that was what Dr. DeCabo proved. Dr. Stephen Gundry is a medical doctor, a clinician, a researcher, and a well-known author who's discussed lectins in many of his books. He's the reason any of us know what lectins are and how they interact with the gut, fatigue, energy levels, cognitive function, and heart disease. Today, we talked about what to eat, what not to eat, when to eat, how to eat, and how all of this affects our health and longevity. Dr. Gundry answered one of my burning questions, how to live forever, and shared the two best predictors of health span. I'm so excited for you to learn as much as I did from Dr. Gundry today. Before we start this next episode, I wanna share with you guys a project I'm working on that is very dear to my heart, Marama. About a year ago, I opened one of the first residential care facilities where dementia patients can immerse themselves in the lifestyle described by Dr. Bredesen in his book, The End of Alzheimer's. I started Marama because there was no care facility I was comfortable recommending to families to send their loved ones when they could no longer care for them at home. I looked around for residential care facilities where they were serving organic food and incorporating Dr. Bredesen's insights. I couldn't find one. At Marama, we provide the space, food, staff, and amenities, and the full experience of implementing the lifestyle changes necessary to support cognitive health. Our safe, respectful, full-service senior homes are designed to target the disease process. Marama is dedicated to stopping the progression of Alzheimer's dementia. If you're interested in learning more, touring the facility, please go to maramaexperience.com. Welcome back to Collective Insights. I'm your host today, Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I'm so pleased to have Dr. Stephen Gundry here today to talk about his new book, The Energy Paradox, and all of the other interesting things he's learned on his journey as both a doctor, a researcher, and a renowned author. So Dr. Gundry, lectins have been called an anti-nutrient. Tell us, what are lectins exactly? Well, they're certainly far more than anti-nutrients. Uh, they're the, one of the principal plant defense mechanisms against being eaten or having their seeds, their babies eaten. And they're uh, sometimes called sticky proteins because they actually seek out sugar molecules to bind to. And 
coincidentally, I guess, these sugar molecules line the lining of our gut, they line our joint surfaces, they line the space between nerve transmission, they're in the myelin sheath and nerves, and they even line the surface of our blood vessels. And there's very good work, some of which uh, is my work, that shows that lectins are a big cause of, uh, for instance, heart disease. Uh, but thanks to Dr. Fasano's work, from who's now at Harvard, uh, he was the first to really prove that gluten, which happens to be a lectin, is a major cause of leaky gut by binding to these sugar receptors on the lining of our gut and actually promoting the breaking of tight junctions. And I've quite frankly never seen a person with autoimmune disease who doesn't have a measurable leaky gut. Uh, I've never seen a person with fatigue or low energy that doesn't have a measurable leaky gut. And we'll probably get into this, but I think uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen and I have never found a person with neuroinflammation that doesn't have a leaky gut and doesn't, for the most part, have a leaky brain or a leaky mouth. And so, um, you know, we can, we can say, oh, these aren't very important, but certainly in my practice, uh, eliminating major lectins and doing a few other things we have about a 90% remission rate of autoimmune disease. Um, that's not bad. That's fantastic. <laughs> I guess it begs the question then, who doesn't have a leaky brain, leaky gut? You know, these things seem almost ubiquitous. And so do you even bother testing anymore? It's one of the conversations I have with my patients is maybe we just assume you have it and go ahead and treat you for it. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And in fact, that's what um, in general... The vast majority of people who who come to my clinics, and I see patients six days a week, uh, even on the weekends, um, the vast majority of people who who follow you know the plant paradox program and the iterations, the most recent of which is the energy paradox program, resolve their issues, resolve their autoimmune diseases. They you know all these markers go away. Uh, they resolve their fatigue. But there's about ten percent that don't. And despite being, you know, they're perfect. They don't cheat. They, you know, they never, no little piece of sourdough bread comes through their mouth. And those people, when, when we get their tests for leaky gut, absolutely still have leaky gut. And then we go further and we look at, uh, we look at food sensitivities. We look at, there are certain people that clearly react to all forms of dairy and clearly react to either egg white or egg yolk or both. And there's a whole new class of lectins that have been recently discovered called the aquaporins. And the aquaporins are present in, among other things, spinach and uh, bell peppers. And I've yet to find any evidence that pressure cooking will destroy these aquaporins. And since you're interested in brain health and I'm interested in brain health, aquaporins uh, are highly associated with leaky brain and highly associated with MS, uh, attack on the myelin sheath. And so when we discover that certainly these patients who aren't getting better, they're better, but they're not all the way, and we do these more sophisticated tests, we go, aha, you know, here were the culprits that you know, we were unaware of. But you're, you're right. 90% of the time, um, we don't have to test for leaky gut because uh, I, I agree. All, all disease processes, like Hippocrates said 2,500 years ago, begin in the gut. And I mean, what a genius. He didn't have all these tests to make him so smart. And you mentioned the mouth. Uh, one of the things that, of course, you, Dr. Bredesen, myself, that we really prioritize is dental health and, and the health of the mouth. Because as you said, disease starts in the gut or health starts in the gut and the gut starts in the mouth. Yes, I in the mouth. And like he makes a very good point. Um, you know, the closest access to your brain is from your mouth and sinuses. I mean, it's a it's a direct shot. And so it, it doesn't take a genius to figure out, well, he's a genius, but um, 
that of course, uh, you know, leaky mouth is going to start this. And years ago, uh, my colleagues and I at, uh, at Loma Linda, Leonard Bailey and I found that you could find mouth flora in the plaques of patients that we were operating on um, from, you know, for coronary artery disease. And I actually like the infectious uh, theory of heart disease more than I like the cholesterol theory of heart disease for that reason. Well, yeah, let's talk about what to eat because part of what we come up against when we talk about the plant paradox is that we think of plants as really healthy, right? And so if as a doctor, I'm going to say to a patient, I think you should take some plants out of your diet. I want to have a really good reason why. And certainly I think the lectins are in that category of a good reason. Um, but tell us what's left. What what do you suggest people eat? Well, I'm, you know, I, I'm a plant predator. Uh, I eat mostly plants, but you got to know who your friends are and who really doesn't have your back. And um, my research as an undergraduate at Yale was actually in human evolutionary biology of tracing uh, the evolution of food choices from great apes to modern humans. And one of the interesting things that I think most of us agree on uh, is that uh, we were, uh, like great apes, a plant eater, and certainly our diet did change into eating, I think, lots of shellfish and fish, and then eventually maybe some animals. But tubers, once cooking arrived, once fire arrived, somewhere around 300,000 years ago, we really see the transition of all these proto-humans into homo sapiens. And I think, for instance, cooking tubers uh, probably was one of the real things that finally made us human, the advent of fire, because we could actually break down plant cell walls. Uh, most people somehow don't realize that we have no digestive ability to break down the cell wall of a plant. We have to, like all other animals, have to have bacteria to do that job, to ferment them. Even a termite can't eat wood. Now, he can eat it, but he can't digest it. So the advent of fire broke down uh, these plants. And fire is actually, I will admit, a pretty good way of detoxifying lectins. Now, the really mischievous lectins, like in beans, for example, uh, or in grains, like wheat, uh, are very resistant to just cooking. And that's been proven over and over again. In fact, recently, uh, I had Joel Furman on my podcast, the Dr. Gundry podcast, and he admitted that he pressure cooks his beans. And I'm going, Wow, newsflash. Uh, why do you, you know, pressure cook beans? Might there be something in there that you uh, want to avoid? And so a long way of saying is we, we really want to try and avoid uh, gluten-containing foods, and that's wheat, rye, barley. And by the way, oats have a gluten-like protein that really cross-reacts. So if it says gluten-free oats, just run the other way. Um, in our in our clinic, 70% of people who react to the components of wheat react to the components of corn. In fact, there is a, a protein in corn that if you react to it, and most people do, your immune system thinks the corn is wheat. Um, and so corn, quinoa is another mischief maker. Unfortunately, even buckwheat has a lectin in it. Uh, Sorghum and millet do not have lectins. They're hullless grains. So in all my books, I really uh, highly recommend if you're going to eat a grain, sorghum and uh, millet are, are right up there. And in rice? fact, so rice, interestingly enough, 4 billion people use rice as their staple. And yet 4 billion people take the hull off of brown rice and eat it white. Now, 4 billion people cannot be that stupid because um, everybody knows how good brown rice is for you. But in fact, the hull contains lectins. And these smart 4 billion people have been taking the hull off of rice um, for a very long time. So, so who should avoid this diet? Is there anybody that this diet doesn't work for? Uh, again, 
I haven't found any, 90% of the time people do very well in this diet with whatever they you know, come in with. Uh, about 70% of my practice now is autoimmune diseases that people have quite frankly been all over the country, all over the world to clinics and haven't had any success. And so that's who kind of ends up in my clinics now. But uh, is there a reason not to eat the diet? Well, I haven't found one. Um. <laughs> and then there's a lot of foods on here that maybe we put them on the maybe list or there's just a certain way to prepare them. Like you mentioned Correct. beans. So can you go through a little bit of what would make something tolerable? Yeah. Um, you know, recently, uh, I was uh, speaking with some researchers from uh, the University of Sydney, Australia, who uh, have written a, a wonderful book that I, I fully uh, enjoyed called Eat Like the Animals. And uh, you know, I do recommend that book, folks. Uh, one of the interesting things that we talked about is traditional cultures have almost always found out a way to detoxify the plant defense systems. And traditional cultures um, soak, uh, for instance, uh, in Italy, they soak beans for 48 hours before they cook them, and they change the water every four hours and put in fresh water. And it turns out that that soaking actually activates fermentation of, of the beans themselves. And again, the lectins are in the outer part. And then they cook them. And interestingly, the Incas who lived on quinoa uh, soaked their quinoa. Then they fermented it. They let it rot. And then they cooked it. And, and so you look at and the Italians did not eat tomatoes for 200 years after Christopher Columbus, their, their native son, brought them back because they knew how deadly they were. So Italians, uh, once they started peeling and deseeding tomatoes, um, began eating them and, of course, using them in sauce. And it's fascinating. I spend a lot of time pre-COVID in going to these little villages and meeting chefs and mothers. Um, every one of them peels and deseeds their tomatoes. And I go, well, where did you learn that from? Oh, you know, my mother taught me. Well, where did she learn it? Well, everybody knows, you know, you you have to peel and deseed a tomato. And I think it's the same way with rice. You know, traditionally, um, they have removed these things. And just as an aside, for 10,000 years since grains have become a major food source, uh, particularly in the West, um, we have been trying to take the haul off of wheat. And in fact, there were you know, debates as who had the whitest wheat and, and you know, and only the rich had white bread and the brown bread was given to the peasants. So traditional cultures have figured this out. And, and the other thing that's important about traditional cultures, as I write about, is they have a diverse microbiome that can actually defend you and eat most plant lectins. And as you and I know, ours is a barren desert. So would you consider this uh, plant paradox diet an ancestral diet? Oh, yeah. I mean, none of us ate you know, any of these modern foods up until about 10,000 years ago. Um, these, these foods did not exist primarily because these defense systems were so good that you'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to adopt these diets. One of the things that I think is fascinating that I wrote about in The Plant Paradox is there's a, um, a lectin in, the, in wheat germ called wheat germagglutin. And wheat germagglutin is actually a really good way of binding on insulin receptors in fat cells. And it actually allows you to store more fat. And I've conjectured and written that I think one of the reasons we adapted these grains into our diet was there wasn't a whole lot of food. And if you ate a food that prompted storing fat more than some other food, that would be a really good food, um, despite the fact it might be making you sicker and smaller, as I've talked about before. And so... I, and that's one of the reasons that 
for instance, wheat belly or things like that, when we take these foods out of people's diet, they almost universally lose weight. Yeah, and I'm sure you're familiar with Jared Diamond, who wrote Guns, Germs, and Steel, and his whole hypothesis, right, is that these protein-containing grains are actually part of what made society, I mean, from an evolutionary societal perspective, like that is what made Western cultures predominant. And so they're not, it's not all bad. And perhaps Correct. previously, right, it, it allowed us to do lots of other things. And yet there's a price that it comes with. And right now we're paying that price in terms of diseases and, and shorter lifespans and spending the second half of our lives in pain with our brains failing us, with our guts failing us. And so how do we get that back? How do we get the benefits of these foods without having to pay the price is sort of the question. Well, again, I think simple substitutions is one thing. So uh, again, if you like your grains, if you like your carbohydrates, and I'm not anti-carbohydrate, um, switch over to carbohydrates that don't carry these problems. And believe it or not, I eat pressure-cooked beans probably two or three times a week, despite what Michael Greger may think. Um, and so I, there are a lot of really good things about beans as long as you defuse them. And they're, you know, as long do these things. Um, tubers, right? tubers are great sources of carbohydrates. There are multiple societies like the Katavans that I write about and the Okinawans who primarily their food source is, uh, you know, sweet potatoes. And so cook them and, and enjoy them. So I want to understand a little bit more about your journey towards finding the ApoE variants. You have studied thousands. You've followed thousands of patients who are ApoE4 positive. Yep. And you have noticed that they have big differences in how they metabolize versus others and that that puts them at risk for Alzheimer's dementia in particular. Tell me a bit about what else you found. And is there anything in that research you've done that maybe we can extrapolate to help the rest of us who aren't ApoE4 positive? Well, yeah, I got interested in, in the ApoE4 gene because um, we know, quote unquote, that it is a major risk factor for coronary artery disease. And in fact, a large number of my patients with uh, early coronary artery disease, when we looked at their ApoE status, they sure enough were ApoE4. 30% of the population carries either a single allele, a 3-4, or a 2% carry the 4-4. And so I wanted to know, okay, what is it about this gene that is so mischievous in terms of producing coronary artery disease? And uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen and I, uh, a few years ago, were introduced, and it was just funny, I... I met him and said, oh, my gosh, you know, big fan of yours, big fan of yours. Oh, my gosh, big fan of yours. You know, learn so much from you. I said, no, no, you're the genius. And so he came at it a different way. I came at it from a cholesterol transport system. And one of the things I think we both agree with is the apolipoprotein is one of the mechanisms that we carry uh, cholesterol, and also uh, phospholipids and omega-3 fats in and out of our brain and in and out of individual uh, cells. And I like, to, I like to describe this ApoE, uh, apolipoprotein E, as basically a subway train. And the subway train is carrying, pa carrying passengers, and the subway stops at a station and let's call cholesterol the passengers. And the cholesterol gets off and it goes into the cell. Cholesterol is necessary. And the subway moves on. Well, at the, quote, end of the day, um, the cell doesn't use all the cholesterol. And so the cholesterol is back loaded onto the subway. We'll just talk about in the afternoon. Unfortunately, the ApoE4, the subway can carry cholesterol very well but it, the doors are closed for cholesterol to get back on the subway at the end of the day. So you have this delivery system that delivers cholesterol incredibly well, but it won't take up the excess. 
And that's where I got inter interested in it. And I noticed, for the most part, that saturated fats in my ApoE4 patients were particularly mischievous in terms of prompting more small, dense LDLs than a compar comparable person. So that's kind of where I approach this. Now, Dr. Bredesen approached this from an inflammatory standpoint, that one of the other problems with the ApoE4 is that it appears that neuroinflammation is far more likely if you carry the ApoE4 gene. And so we, we've come at it from different ways, but we've arrived at, at a middle ground where we agree on almost everything about it. So. And the diet, so here is where diet is really important. Saturated fats and how we metabolize saturated fats or how those with ApoE4 metabolize those fats, particularly like coconut. So things that we would think of as being very um, nutritious, very healthy, maybe aren't so much in that system. So what are the things that people really need to be careful about? Yeah, so I definitely, I've, I've banned pretty much coconut oil from my ApoE4 folks. Uh, I was very suspicious uh, about medium chain triglycerides because it is a part of coconut oil, but I've subsequently come around and actually think that my ApoE4 folks actually ought to consume MCT oil. And if we have time, we'll talk about why I think that's uh, probably a good idea. Well, wait, she... I want to know. I <laughs> well, so MCT oils, um, and I actually, this is actually a good good starting off point where Dr. Bredesen and I completely agree. Saturated fats, uh, long chain fats, um, are carried, absorbed through our gut on chylomicrons, which are big transport molecules. And chylomicrons, uh, LPSs, lipopolysaccharides, which in my book I call little pieces of shit, uh, because that's what they are. Uh, chylomicrons can absorb LPSs. LPSs hop on chylomicrons to get through the wall of the gut, even without leaky gut. And LPSs are really one of the best ways to start your immune system going crazy. And LPSs are a great way to make neuroinflammation. On the other hand, medium chain triglycerides are not absorbed with chylomicrons. They're absorbed directly through the wall of the gut. And unlike chylomicrons, which uh, go through the lymphatics, uh, MCT oil, uh, goes directly via the portal vein to the liver. And once MCT hits the liver, it's virtually instantaneously made into ketone bodies. And ketone bodies are one of the more protective substances for the brain. And it's not why everybody thinks, and uh, it's in my next book, so we won't go there. Um, but so MCTs, particularly in ApoE4s, may be one of the tricks to protect against neuroinflammation. Now, the other thing that's interesting, I have a number of ApoE4s that cheese, um, which is mostly saturated fat, uh, is a real mischief maker in terms of making oxidized LDL, uh, in terms of you know, really elevating small, dense LDLs. And I've challenged a number of my APOE3-4s to cheese challenges where, you know, okay, eat some cheese. We're going to, you know, we're going to measure your small, dense LDLs. We're going to measure your oxidized LDLs. And then let's take away cheese for two weeks and do the same thing. And lots of them, you know, it's, wow, you know, where did all my oxidized LDL go? And well, it was the cheese. On the other hand, there's some very interesting information that uh, cheeses, particularly from sheep and goats, about 20 to 30% of the fats in those cheeses and those cheeses alone are medium chain triglycerides. 
And of course, uh, most medium chain triglycerides are named after goats, caprylic acid, capric acid. So I've, I've altered my recommendations on an individual basis um, to let some of my APOE4s have uh, sheep and goat cheeses. And eggs? So we've not seen a strong association between egg consumption and small dense LDL particles. And there was a very large Finnish study that I talked about in the uh, Plant Paradox book that found no association in worsening uh, dementia in APOE4 carriers and egg consumption. So eggs get a pretty good pass with the proviso is that some of my real mischief makers who didn't make any sense following my program, sensitivity to eggs was was right up there on the list. Yeah, it's a common food allergen. And then what about, I think you break down poultry versus red meat. So describe why those animal proteins are different and who should have which ones. Yeah, great question. Uh, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, and, you know, um, the beef state. And so in my research on xenotransplantation, where we would take a heart from a completely different species and put it into another one, we, uh, all of our research for years, has been looking at the pig as the perfect candidate for a human heart transplant. Pig's heart look almost identical to human hearts. Uh, pigs are omnivores just like us. Unfortunately, every time we did these transplants, uh, and I have the longest record of a pig to baboon transplant yet, um, we found vascular rejection at about a month. I mean, vicious vascular rejection. And so we looked for why is this? And it turns out that pigs, sheep, and uh, cows have a sugar molecule on the inside of their blood, blood vessels called NU5GC. And I tell people, who knew? On the other hand, fish, chicken, and humans have a different sugar molecule, NU5AC. And there's pretty cool evidence that these molecules are incredibly similar. They differ only by, by one uh, little bond. We can develop an antibody to NU5GC when we eat uh, beef, lamb, and pork, and we'll have an autoantibody to our own blood vessels. And the other thing that's interesting is that cancer cells uh, protect themselves by, among other things, cloaking in NU5GC. And yet humans cannot manufacture NU5GC. So we're pretty convinced that NU5GC was obtained from beef, lamb, and pork, and that maybe one of the reasons why, uh, particularly red meat consumption, is more associated with cancer than fish, uh, for instance. So, so I have to go back to your fascinating work on transplanting organs between species. There are not many people I get to talk to who have done that. Um, so you called it xenotransplantation, is that right? Yep. What do you th they see the role of that being in, in just the future of medicine? Well, you know, I think the exciting thing is, um, you know, since I left that practice, uh, pigs are now being genetically engineered to no longer express uh, those antigens on the lining of their blood vessels. And I think uh, one of the fathers of transplantation used to, used to always joke that xenotransplantation will be the future of heart transplantation and always will be uh, because we'll always you know, hit a stumbling block. But I think now with, you know, genetic engineering, with CRISPR technology, I really do think that um, we'll figure out, and we have figured out, what molecules we have to change to, to stop this uh, hyperacute vascular rejection. Fascinating, fascinating. And so your next book is called The Energy Paradox. I'm curious, I know this is kind of the... the 
the next progression of how we apply the plant paradox to different things that we're really suffering with societally. And I think, you know, more than half of my patients, probably the vast majority of them, particularly when I start to see them, suffer with fatigue. So this is just a very, very, very common complaint. And it affects everything. It's how we engage with our families, how, how well we show up at work. And so we're talking here with you about how these molecular pieces, the proteins in foods might be affecting our guts, our brains, our cardiovascular health. And now, can you tell us more specifically how it affects our energy levels? Is this, uh, is this mediated through the mitochondria? Is there another way? How do we get there? Uh, two ways. And one you already alluded to. Um, one of the things that was fascinating to me is a study that was actually done a few years ago by Duke researchers, anthropologists, who wanted to look at the Hadzes, one of the last remaining hunter-gatherer groups in Tanzania, who um, the the Hadzes, the men walk, go eight to 10 miles a day, the women walk three to five miles a day. Uh, They're thin, they're fit, they're healthy. And they wanted to look at the energy expenditure of these people and compare them to desk workers, office workers. And, of course, their hypothesis was, well, you know, the reason these Hanses are so thin and fit is because they, you know, they're using all this energy up in walking, et cetera, et cetera. And what, lo and behold, what they found was the Hadzas walking, you know, eight miles a day, used the same amount of energy as a desk worker. And they actually made a conclusion, which I totally disagree with, uh, doesn't pass the Smith te- sniff test, is that we all have a fixed amount of energy expenditure, no matter what we do, and that's what we expend. And I'm going, what? Come on. So I go, you know, I half the patients I see have fatigue as one of their diagnoses. So if you look at inflammation, if you look at leaky gut, of our immune system, our white blood cells, line our gut wall. And they're there because that's where the invasion comes across. And let's think of them as soldiers. So soldiers need a lot of supplies, a lot of food. And we have to ration when we're at war uh, so that the soldiers have most of the supplies. And so what I submit and have shown in multiple studies is that the fire of inflammation, which uh, underlies all chronic disease processes, is taking most of our fuel away from our muscles and particularly from our brain. And that's why the desk workers had the same energy expenditure as these people who were walking eight to 10 miles a day. They were expending energy, that's for sure, but it was for inflammation. The second thing that I think is fascinating to me is that our mitochondria, those little energy-producing organelles that are responsible for making most of our ATP, can handle uh, sugars, glucose, they can handle amino acids, and they can handle free fatty acids and make uh, ATP. They use slightly different enzyme systems, slightly different electron transport systems to to handle each of those things. And traditionally, in whole food diets, like I talk about in the energy paradox, those substances would arrive kind of on on a timely schedule. The carbohydrates would arrive first. The proteins, which would take longer to break down, would arrive second. And fats, which had to go through a huge circuitous route to arrive, would in general arrive last. Now, what's happened with our modern processed foods and ultra-processed foods is that food chemists have figured out how to break whole foods down into simple sugars, simple amino acids, simple fats, and put them all together in a savory package. And so when we eat these processed foods, they arrive at our mitochondria for processing exactly like rush hour traffic. And the mitochondria literally can't handle that influx of carbon atoms to be processed. And so 
work by Sachin Panda in the Salk Institute in San Diego has shown that you know the average American now is eating up to 16 hours a day with about eight hours off uh, for sleeping, if you're lucky. And he's shown that that you know, rush hour traffic is one of the reasons that our mitochondria don't make energy because everything just kind of grinds to a grinds to a halt. And in the book, I talk about how our mitochondria literally put up defenses against all of this influx. And the defense that we use initially is insulin resistance. And go ahead. Are you a fan of intermittent fasting then? Believe it or not, as far as I know, and I'm happy to be corrected, uh, I was the first to write about intermittent fasting in 2006 in my first book. And really quick, funny story. Uh, my first book, uh, Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution, was done by Random House. And we had an entire chapter on intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating. And my uh, editor, Heather Jackson, at the time said, this is too crazy. No, we're not going to do it. This is nuts. And I said, no, it's not nuts. I've been doing this now for five years. Here's the science. It's not nuts. She said, no, this book is crazy enough already. I'll give you two pages to make your case. And I said, you're making a mistake. She said, I'm telling you, it's nuts. So I got two pages. Uh, go ahead, look it up. Um, so I saw her at Mind Body Green um, in the symposium pre-COVID uh, year before last, and she came up to me and she said, can you ever forgive me? You were right. You were so far ahead of your time. I, I you know, I should have known. I said, it's okay. But yeah, so long before the 5-2 diet, long before Jason Fung, I was writing about this. So there you go. So, yep. So I want to know, since you're ahead of your time, um, how to live forever. The longevity paradox is another one of your books. What are, what's the premise there? What do we need to do to live long, healthy lives? So, and I think we're finding more and more and more about this every year, is that the, the health of your gut microbiome the diversity of species in your gut microbiome and the integrity of the wall of your gut is the are the best two predictors of health span that we can come up with now in the energy paradox i go on to show that uh, really elegant work by uh, Dr. Raphael de Cabo from the NIH has shown, certainly to my satisfaction, that the shorter we make an eating window, the longer we're going to live and live well. And the good news about that is, at least in his research, it really doesn't matter the types of foods we eat, whether it's a high sugar diet, whether it's a high protein diet, whether it's a high fat diet, it's actually the compression of the eating window that makes the difference. And I go into this a lot in the energy paradox and my current editor, Julie Will, fought me on this because it's really nerdy. But the really cool thing is probably calorie restriction, which is still the number one way to extend lifespan, works not by restricting calories, but works because calorie restricted animals, because they don't get much to eat, eat their calories rapidly. And it's the time they're not eating that actually made the difference. And that was what Dr. DeCabo proved. Interesting. One of the things I come into basically is an issue for us at my clinic and then also at Marama is these sweet little old ladies who have dementia start losing too much weight on these diets. And then we have to balance that with their risk of osteoporosis and bone health issues. How do you balance the weight loss with the brain benefits, the longevity benefits? How do we, how do we square that circle? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, there are some fascinating uh, studies in in humans that time-restricted eating uh, does cause weight loss. Um, Beautiful study that I talk about in the Energy Paradox with Italian athletes. Eating the exact same isocaloric meals, uh, one group uh, ate their meals in a 12-hour window, the other group ate their meals in an 8-hour window. They both maintain muscle mass, which is important. I think we should realize. But the eight-hour window group, despite the exact same number of calories, it was controlled, lost weight. But the benefit was that their insulin-like growth factor, which I think is still probably one of the best markers for good aging, uh, plummeted compared to the athletes who had a 12-hour eating window. So I think... I'm less worried about weight loss per se, as long as we don't get sarcopenia and loss of muscle. And I think those two are not incompatible. So maybe the old truism that you can never be too rich or too skinny might have some application. I'm also curious, the ketogenic diet, um, I tend to associate that with benefits if it's with this intermittent fasting. However, if we're doing intermittent fasting and there is sugar in the diet, you're burning sugar for fuel, then I imagine that what's going on is that patients and myself were on this roller coaster of spiked blood sugar and then dropped blood sugar. And our our liver is still going through gluconeogenesis to maintain that blood sugar level. Um, And so the what you had just said was that actually that intermittent fasting does pair well with a, a diet that does contain sugar when you're not in ketosis. So do you get all of the benefits or do you want to be doing more of the intermittent fasting with ketosis? Or what you're saying is basically it doesn't matter. Yeah, it looks like it doesn't matter. And, and in fact, I think uh, personally, and the next book is on this subject, a, a 24-7 ketogenic diet um, is, I think, a long-term bad choice. Um, and even in particularly the APOE4 uh, individuals, there's there's not a lot, actually, of strong evidence that ketones have the same effect in the APOE4s than they do in non-APOE4s. And these are human studies. Uh, so... Um, I think there's more to it than just the presence of, of, of ketones. Um, I think from Dr. Cabo's work, it wasn't the, the ketones, the continuous ketosis, it was the cycling between ketones appearing and ketones not appearing. And uh, there's some fascinating work that I talk about in the next book, but it's premature. So. So your next book comes mid-March, yep. and yep. it's so exciting. Mid-March. This is the... Energy Paradox. Energy Paradox. Thank you, what thank you. What to do when your get-up-and-go is got-up-and-gone. <laughs> so where can people find it? Is this available on all of the major book re- retailers? Yeah, it's available, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. But please, please, please try to buy it from your local bookseller. Um They've been, you know, hammered by COVID and, you know, anything we can do to keep them uh, alive and well uh, would be greatly appreciated. And you said you are still seeing patients six days a week. We actually share a couple of patients. And um, how can someone get on your schedule? Well, so they can, uh, you know, they can come to drgundry.com and find me there. They can come to Heart lunginstitute.com that's uh, where they can get on the schedule we have an 800 number we still um, what I do now I have a phenomenal uh, physician's assistant who initially sees my patient but don't worry you get into the queue and and I see you so I uh, I can attest to this I have patients who have been through the process and benefited greatly from your wisdom she's uh, most patients would rather see her. Mitsu's fantastic. So <laughs> a shout out to Mitsu. Uh, yeah, but um, we don't turn away patients. I used to have to. Um, but and I see patients on the weekends because, uh, quite frankly, I've learned most of what I've learned in the last 21 years from my patients and them allowing me to 
do blood work on them every three months and say, hey, you know, take away this food, add this food. Here, go to Costco and buy this supplement. Um, let's see what happens. You know, stop this supplement. And, you know, I've, my patients have taught me most of what I know. It is such a privilege. I, I agree that from my clinical experience as well, I've learned more from my patients than I did in four years of medical school. And it, it is so phenomenal to watch the changes and to really watch people perk up, get their health back and be able to get back to doing the things they love. And I know a lot of people don't just get that from seeing you clinically, but get the benefits of that from reading your books and listening to your podcast. So thank you for working so hard doing the work that you do to make sure that more of us stay healthier longer. Well, I appreciate that. You know, like I, I'm still a kid in a candy store and not a day goes by that I hopefully, actually, I always learn something uh, every day. And that's why I keep working. I'm in my 70s now and I have no intention of retiring. And one last word, if you, if you want to get tired, retire. Um, I just see so many of my patients when they retire begin this kind of downward, just slow death spiral. Don't retire, please. <laughs> or at least find something you're excited about. Exactly. Or do something new. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Dr. Gundry, I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you also to our listeners for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned so much. Well, thanks for having me on Collective Insights. Appreciate it. You're so welcome. This episode of Collective Insights was hosted by Dr. Heather Sanderson and produced by Abby Arda. The podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, homeopathic supplement, and any other questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any health professional affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of our guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibilities for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guests, qualifications, or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.